Hi everyone and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Scottish Paddlecast from the Scottish Canoe Association. Um, we hope you're keeping well um, and we're delighted to have a bit of a special edition of our podcast today. Um, we're joined by Royal Air Force fast jet pilot Matt. Um, so unlike our previous podcasts which have uh, been generally with coaches, um, today we're joined by uh, someone who's not a performance coach but is actually from uh, the world of military aviation. Um, so the podcast is slightly different today. Um, it's a bit of a different direction. Uh, Matt's going to talk about his amazing journey over the last 15 years or so. Um, he's going to particularly talk about uh, some of the performance anxiety uh, that I suppose he came up against during his, his training to become a fast jet pilot and some of the skills, particularly around visualization that he used to help him get through that. So there's something in here for everyone. Uh, for any paddlers, any athletes out there who are interested in learning more about uh, about performance more broadly, this is going to be a great podcast for you to listen to. But also for any coaches out there looking at um, the application of some of what we do into different contexts, this is a, an absolute must listen. Um, so I really hope you enjoy it. I had a great time recording it with Matt, um, so I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. So... Obviously, your, your day job, you are a pilot, but you have done a decent amount of paddling. I remember you going off and doing an expedition in Austria and all sorts of things years ago. So we're asking everybody the same question to get you warmed up. If you could paddle anywhere in the world with any people, in any boat, craft or whatever, what would you do? Where would you go? What would that be like? Okay, so, um, yeah, there's probably a few places I would really like to go, but I think high on my list would be uh, south um, eastern Alaska on the uh, coast where it meets British Columbia and Canada. Uh, I think just sea kayaking along that, that part of the coastline there would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, the wildlife, the scenery, the wilderness would be just a great experience. And I've had a taste of that um, sea kayaking around Vancouver Island before. Uh, so I'd definitely like to probably do something like that again in, in my lifetime. Ah, oh, what a great answer. So we've had lots of different answers to that question so far, but uh, sea kayaking, uh, I think that might be the first sea kayaking answer. Uh, and Alaska, that is that is a good good answer. There'll be some paddlers out there giving you some, some pretty good kudos for that answer, Matt, I think. So it's incredibly hard to introduce you and summarise your journey succinctly, so I'm going to let you do that yourself in a moment. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners... Um, Matt and I got to know each other uh, a few years ago during our time on the East of Scotland University's Air Squadron. Um, so when we were both studying full-time at, at different universities, but we were also members uh, of the Royal Air Force's reservists, like, like the TA. Uh, we were learning to fly and we are organising and going on expeditions and all that kind of stuff you'd probably expect we were doing. As often happens at the end of university, our, our paths diverged um, and Matt went off to join the Royal Air Force. So before we dive into your time in the Royal Air Force and what your current day job is, although I don't really think it's a day job, um, could you tell us a bit about your journey? You know, you grew up in Lanarkshire, um, your journey up to this point and kind of, and how you became a pilot and what that's been like for you. Sure thing, yeah. So it's um, so flying's always been something I've had a passion for and uh, I had a relatively normal childhood growing up in Lanarkshire, with, you know, nothing too unusual talk about however um i always knew from a young age that i wanted to fly uh, i used to see training aircraft in the RAF flying over my house when i was growing up uh, there was our, our airfield just to the um a few miles away outside my house for gliders and things so i used to see them quite regularly and my dad was also very keen on on uh, aviation 
uh, and encouraged me down that path, I'd imagine, from a young age. So it's something I've always always grew up with an interest in. So I started um, getting properly into flying probably while I was uh, about 15, started doing flying lessons at Glenrothes. There's a little um, airfield there, so I started doing some flying lessons there. I got my pilot's license at 17 because uh, I knew it's what I wanted to, to do. Um, and then went off to university at St Andrews, which uh, was uh, a really good experience. Uh, while there, I applied to join uh, what's called the University's Air Squadron. Uh, and that's basically like an RAF reserve unit where uh, various universities, um, students from various universities in a, a certain area are recruited um, into the reserves and they get given flying on uh, training aircraft uh, from different RAF bases. Uh, lots of adventurous training uh, and expedition opportunities. So, for example, the sea kayaking I did and uh, mentioned earlier was in uh, Canada with the University's Air Squadron and also uh, river kayaking in Austria on the Imstersluch. That was one of the first expeditions I did with the uh, University's Air Squadron. And obviously, this is where I met Doug as well. Um, so that kind of uh, really accelerated my, um, I guess, my experience uh, as far as flying and um uh, and my my experience understanding of the RAF was concerned. So when it came to the sort of uh, graduation, um, I'd studied uh, geology at university. So I was at that point where I either looked at going down a path for becoming a geologist, which appealed to me because it obviously gets you around the world, get to see uh, Arctic, potentially Antarctica. So lots of adventure involved in that. Um, so the option was either pursue that path or go into flying, which is obviously what I'd been passionate about for so long. At the time, it was just after the uh, the the recession, uh, so there was not very many uh, airline flying jobs going at the time. So it seemed the, the most sensible option, and also a very good option to join the RAF, which is what I then applied to do and, and got accepted um, and started my training in 2010. So that was the path that got me into the the RAF uh, up to that point. Okay, thanks, Matt. uh, Yeah, nice and succinct there. Impressive. Um, That's a lot of things happened on that journey. So our path split at that point and you went off to to join the Royal Air Force. Now, most people listening won't really have any sense of what that journey looks like. Could you maybe just walk us through that that training experience? you'll have gone through obviously initial officer training and then into your flying training. Could you just maybe give us a sense of what, what that, that journey is like and maybe a, a bit about um, what that looked and felt like? Of course, yeah. So um, it's quite a long uh, training path um, to become a fully qualified operational pilot uh, in the RF, depending on what type of aircraft you're flying particularly. First of all, as you've mentioned, we do officer training for about um, seven to, to nine months uh, at RAF Cranwell, and that it gives you basic military skills, mil- military discipline, uh, into more leadership-based training and uh, air power studies, which is uh, kind of academic studies into the history of um, air power during World War II, Vietnam, uh, the Gulf Wars and, and whatnot. So it's to try and look at the lessons from all those um, conflicts and how air, air power was used. So that's very much a, a large part of the, the, uh, the officer training. Once you finish that, you then generally get uh, assigned straight away to a, a training unit for 
uh, elementary flying training. So this is essentially like getting a private pilot's license. It's a similar course. It's all the basics of how to fly, and that'll be done on a light aircraft, propeller-driven aircraft um, that you'll see flying from uh, lots of uh, little airports around the UK. So that's generally uh, what everyone will do. Uh, I had a seven-month uh, delay prior to starting that. Um, it's quite a regular occurrence that you will have a bit of a delay before moving on to your next training post. So I did a job in London uh, for the Ministry of Defence for about seven months prior to then going on to my elementary flying training. So that's about 50 hours of flying training. And by the end of that, you uh, essentially have done enough training to be awarded a civil pilot's licence. And that includes basic handling of the aircraft, um, emergency procedures, navigation, formation flying, and uh, aerobatics. So manoeuvring the aircraft to its uh, limits, uh, loops, barrel rolls, uh, stall turns, all sorts of different manoeuvres that you maybe will have heard of. So that's elementary flying training. And at the end of that, you, um, depending on how you've done in the course, you will then get what's known as streamed to either helicopters, multi-engine aircraft, so large transport aircraft, airline-type aircraft, um, or uh, the other option is fast jets, um, so the, the fighter jets. Uh, so each flight that you do on the elementary training is graded, and then based upon uh, how well you've done and also what they require, um, you will then get streamed. So after streaming, you either have another bit of a delay, potentially a few months up to even a few years. I, I had two and a half years between finishing my elementary training to moving on to my next stage of uh, which was for jets um, and that uh, that took that was two and a half years down in Bristol working in a, a procurement job for the F-35 Lightning II um, the new aircraft that's in service with the RAF and the Royal Navy uh, so that that was a long time between flying training uh, and then moving on to the next type which uh, was on the Tucano which is a, another um uh, propeller-driven aircraft at this time. It's got a gas turbine engine in it, so it's a lot more powerful, uh, and it's got a lot more uh, higher performance. So the performance is more similar to that of a, of a fighter aircraft. So it's a good lead-in towards flying uh, a jet aircraft. So you do about um, a year uh, on, on that aircraft type, and again, everything's assessed, uh, and it builds up um, the skills that you've learned on elementary training and just develops them further so you'll be now doing low level navigation at um, 240 knots as opposed to 120 knots so the speed that you were flying at is now doubled uh, the aerobatics are a lot more aggressive so there's a lot more g-force that you have to tolerate uh, and you'll do a lot more advanced formation flying so uh, working in formations of twos or three leading formations uh, doing uh, basic sort of combat maneuvers but um, chasing each other through the sky and things so, so it's a very, it just basically develops your ability to handle a more powerful, faster aircraft and builds your capacity and experience. And it's also a way of uh, assessing to make sure that you're then ready to go on to jets. So after that course, you're then on to your basic, uh, sorry, your advanced jets training, which takes place at RAF Valley in uh, North Wales, Anglesey. Um, and that's done on the Hawk T2, which is uh, a, essentially a, a small fighter jet. It has the... Um, simulated weapons, a head-up display, uh, simulated radar, and uh, very similar performance to a, a fighter jet. So it's a, a really good step onto your first jet-powered aircraft. And again, the speed has doubled another time. So you're now flying around at 420 knots. So compared to the Tucano, you're now doubled the speed again. Uh, so everything is 
that bit harder and also the jets are just typically a lot harder to fly because of the uh, uh, engine wind-up characteristics. So rather than getting an instantaneous return on the power, when you put the power forward, there'll be a delay before the engine winds up and you get the power. So you have to anticipate things a lot more uh, and things can go wrong a lot faster because you're clearly tearing around the sky a lot faster. Again, we do all the same sort of stuff, building on formation flying, aerobatics, navigation, low-level navigation, but then uh, the second half of the course is into um, fighting with the aircraft. So uh, you do um, air-to-air combat, uh, two versus one aircraft combat, uh, air-to-ground attacks, profiles, and all the tactical elements. And so that's quite a big step up um, compared to anything else we've done before and is all the new stuff, really. Uh, so that's it's it's very good fun, but it's also quite a quite a hard course. Probably one of the hardest courses that um, you can do in the RAF. Once you complete that course, then um, you get uh, assigned to a, a frontline operational jet. So either the F thirty five Lightning II, or the um, Eurofighter Typhoon, or potentially you stay back on as an instructor at the uh, at the base at Valley. I got streamed onto the Eurofighter Typhoon, uh, which is the jet I'm now flying. And uh, for that, I had to then do another six months of conversion onto my frontline type, which was, um, wasn't was as big a step up compared to any of the other training I've done because it, the Hawk T2 that we train on uh, at Valley is very similar in layout and how the cockpit looks and everything to the, the Typhoon. So it's quite a nice transition onto the aircraft. The big difference with the Typhoon, though, is that it's got two engines and it's got an immense amount of power and can pull nine G's, which is uh, nine times the force of gravity. So when you're pulling nine G's, your your head will weigh nine times its usual weight, and all that stress is going to your body, and you have to be able to resist all that G force to stay conscious and be able to fly and fight the aircraft. So it is quite brutal uh, and unforgiving how um per how high the performance in that aircraft is. But it's also an amazing aircraft to fly uh, with the uh, the height it can go to, the speeds it can achieve. Uh, you're talking about. 1200 miles an hour or something uh, supersonic up to Mach 1.8, 1.8 times the speed of sound so it's quite an amazing bit of machinery uh, so yeah it's taken a long time to get to that point um, I've been flying the Typhoon for about two and a half years now but to get onto the Typhoon it took the best part of nine years of training which is a long time to be uh, in the pressure bubble of the training system constantly being assessed um, being away from from home, having to move around the country to different bases and uh, just always having the, the pressure of having to pass flights and um, perform to the best of your ability for that, that period of time. So yeah, it's a, a long road to get there, but uh, it's, I'd say it was definitely worth the, uh, the effort and the pain at times to, to get there. Well, I'm just taking stock of that, Matt. And obviously some of that I knew already, but I suppose I hadn't really clocked that it was nine years of constantly going through that. Now, you used this really interesting expression at the end there. You said being in the pressure bubble of training. So I'm just really interested if you could just unpack that a little bit for us. But what would you kind of mean by being in that pressure bubble? So what's it like going through some of those those flights with instructors and so on? Yeah, so... Um... Each flight, you will be uh, assessed um, almost a bit. Well, let's let's take it back. Actually, we'll go from the sort of the moment you turn up and work. From the moment you turn up and work, you're assessed during the morning weather brief on an emergency drill. So, an emergency drill will be picked, and someone at random will be questioned on that drill. 
you need to be able to stand up and rattle off that emergency drill verbatim. Otherwise, you can end up getting into quite a lot of trouble, potentially put on um, ground report warnings. So from the moment you step in, you've got this like overlying pressure that you know that you need to be all over things from the get-go. So there's that aspect. You then have uh, the planning time for the, the flight. So um, that's where you need to start preparing maps, uh, working out where you're going, checking the weather, uh, discussing things with the formation, preparing the brief. And then you will either be briefed or you will be giving the brief if you're leading the formation. So you need to be kind of all over things. And it's usually quite a tight timeline. There's quite a lot of pressure at that point to make sure that you consider all the different contingencies, make sure your plan is sound, make sure everyone knows what's going on, make sure all the um, maps and products that you're going to require have been produced. So there's quite a lot of pressure on that side of things. And during briefs, you'll also get quizzed on what you're going to do to, so the instructor knows that you have read up and that you know what you're doing. Because quite a lot of the stuff that you're going to do is quite safety critical and they need to know that um, you are have, have done the studying and are aware of all the rules to make sure that there's not going to be any uh, safety infringements. Um, so there's quite a lot of pressure in, in all that in itself, which you kind of become accustomed to because it's just the kind of routine of going flying. Um, and then clearly you have the uh, the flight itself. So you go and you have to get into all your um, equipments, your flying equipment, your life jacket, your anti-G equipment, which helps protect your yourself by uh, compressing your legs and your and your lower body to keep the blood in the upper part of your body against the G-force. So you get all your kit on. It's hot, it's sweaty, it's uncomfortable. Um and then you, you get out to the jet and you do all your checks, get in the jet with your instructor, and then everything is assessed from that point uh, onwards. So all the checks that you have to do, uh, your your communication, um, your handling of the jet, your assessment of the weather, everything is assessed. And then uh, as, you, as you go and fly um, the mission or the training sortie, they'll be seeing how you perform in various different factors. So your physical handling of the jet, your decision-making, what's known as airmanship. So that's your kind of, um, that's you making sound decisions for the conduct of the flight or the mission, uh, how you deal with emergencies, how you manage your formation, all that sort of thing. I guess like how you'd maybe read a river uh, if you were going paddling um, for the conditions of the day. So it's all those kind of considerations um, is what's covered in airmanship. And then they also assess your capacity, so how much spare mental capacity, because a lot of flying is um, loading you up with uh, more tasks and decision-making and problems and things to deal with to the point that you, you reach your limits and you, um, a lot of people kind of get this thing. It's called helmet fire is a term that's used where they just kind of get maxed out. They, they can't, your, your brain stops processing things properly. You just have to stop at that point and just focus on flying the jet and then slowly start looking and prioritizing what you need to do. And that's just something that they always try and do is to try and load you up and see what point you get maxed out. So it's quite unpleasant, as you can imagine. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of pressure and you can have a great trip. Everything could be going well. You could be in the zone. It could all be running on rails. But then you could come back and miss one check, one small check, and then you could fail that whole trip and have to do it again. And if the, and if you fail a trip, you get put onto what's known as an air warning. So that's um, uh, basically you get put onto a warning report level and you get given an extra go at that trip. If you then have a problem on that next trip, you'll be put onto a second level of warning. 
you'll then get maybe a couple of more uh, options and a little bit of additional training. If you have, if you don't pass that satisfactorily, then you're on to the third level of warning, which generally will be a couple more hours of training, and then you'll do a what's known as a chop ride. Uh, so that's where you go up for a final check flight, and if you if you mess up, then you get chopped from the course, you're removed from the course, and um, you could you're probably going to get reassigned to different aircraft types, so a multi-engines or helicopters, or into a ground branch potentially, or you you, you may leave the the service. So that that sounds like there's quite a lot of steps there to get to that point, but in reality, there's been cases where people have had a bad trip on the Monday morning, and by the Monday of the next week, they've been that's them done. They've used their all the warnings and extra training, and they've and they've been chopped. Fifty uh, percent of courses is not a unheard of figure of people of number of people to get removed from the training system. So on my course, only fifty percent of us got through. Um, some courses the whole courses didn't make it through so it is a lot of pressure uh, and I certainly have been in the position where I've been on the air warning system for uh, having failed trips uh, I think I got into the third level um, when I was on the Hawk uh, during training and that was an immense amount of pressure um, really quite unpleasant actually and I really had to dig deep to um, to get through that and to stay focused because it does not take much to just make a simple mistake or to make a poor decision, and that's that's the trip gone. The margins for error are so slim because of how uh, safety critical things are, and how how you how easy it would be for um, a problem like that to develop if you were on your own uh, into something that's life threatening. So the, that's why it has to be so strict and so ruthless, um, and and that's why it's such a high pressure system to be in. And um, I really, I struggled with the pressure. Uh, I'll be the first person to admit that. And I really had to look at a lot of different things and study a lot of different way, ways of dealing with that pressure. Uh, some of which uh, I, I hope to talk to you about because um, it certainly made a big difference to me and got me through the uh, the pressure bubble of that training system. Wow, Matt. I mean, I, I guess I had some idea of uh, how difficult and how long and how brutal that training process and program is but i suppose i'd never really heard it in in those terms before um and so you probably know what i'm going to ask you which is well how, how do you cope with that um incredibly difficult process when it goes on for so long i mean i had a little bit of a taste of the kind of pressure that they can put you under and the kind of things that uh where you can get pushed to um but i guess i'm just really interested in to how do you go about coping with that what kind of strategies did you come up with Sure thing, yeah. So um, I certainly struggled uh, with the pressure at times. Um, it was something I had to really battle against um, throughout the flying training that I've done. And even now, now I've completed all the training, just the, the pressures of, of the job now that I'm uh, fully operational, uh, I still at times have to um, manage the pressure. And there's various things that I, I kind of had to look into and learn either about myself or uh, through studying different strategies um, to deal with pressure, which I then implemented. So I've spent quite a lot of time trying to find strategies for, for managing the pressure, as you as you'd imagine, uh, over those last nine years. So I guess there's two aspects of this. There's really the, the pressure to perform on an individual flight, so the, um, the performance pressure. And then there's uh, kind of like the long-term pressure of being in in that pressure bubble for so long. So I'll address the first 
points. So how, how do they deal with the pressure of uh, performing for each individual uh, mission or, or, or training flight? So I guess there's two types of people that you get in flying training. There's those that um, need to work hard in order to, to cope with things and, and get through. And then there's those that seem to just be able to to naturally float through without um, seeming to get too much pressure or stress on themselves. I'd say most people are the first variety where they have to work and um, find their own ways of, of coping with the, uh, the pressure of the training. So for me, um, the way I, I generally dealt with it would be making sure I was as prepared as I could be for, for each flight. If I knew that I was uh, prepared and I'd put all the work in that I could have beforehand, then it would give me the confidence that I knew what I was doing uh, so that when I then went to do the, the flight, I would feel feel okay about it. So that was kind of the main thing that I, I would do. Naturally, to, for to be prepared, you need to um, sort of study, do a lot of reading. Um, you get a load of briefings. You can discuss things with your colleagues. Um, but the one thing that I think that made the big difference for me was visualization, which is uh, probably a technique that you've come across before in sports performance coaching. Uh, and in, in, in everyone's own um, performance practices before uh, competing, for example. So uh, visualization f- for me would be to sit and visualize in my mind uh, all aspects of the flight I was about to do. So I used to imagine all the checks I would need to do, all the radio calls I was going to make, all the handling of the aircraft that I was about to do, how I was going to deal with emergencies. I just visualized the whole mission from start to finish that I was about to do. Um, uh, and that usually set me in a good place where I felt like I knew what I was, I was going to do. And I did that throughout my flying training. Uh, sometimes it'd just be sat in my room, uh, imagining a, a whole flight with my, uh, maybe like a cockpit poster up so I could refer to all the instrumentation um, and the switches and everything. Other times, certainly on the uh, light training aircraft, on the elementary flying training, I used to sit in the uh, aircraft in the hangar and just run through what I was going to do in my mind, but with the added props of all the controls being in front of me. And then as I advanced through the training, um, we were provided with uh, basically like miniature flight simulators that you could sit in that had all the cockpit switches and controls. And they were kind of uh, a very useful way of practicing um, all, all the things that you can you could be expected to do in a, a synthetic training environment on the simulator. So visualization was a big, uh, big part of being prepared for me. However, there is a, a downside to the visualization, and that was that if something happened on my training flight that I hadn't anticipated or hadn't visualized properly, then I could be easily thrown off. Um, I like things to run on rails because I'm quite procedurally minded, so I need things to be. Uh, I like things to be known in a known procedure, and then I know what I need to be doing. Whereas um, it's quite an important skill to develop to have flexibility and be able to adapt to the scenario because with military flying and operational flying you just you just need to be able to flex and uh, change your plan of action and uh, change what skills you require to be executing at a short notice without any uh, time to plan and prepare for it so of being it's almost being perhaps over, overly prepared by too much visualization because um it would mean that I'd be less flexible when I then encountered something such as poor weather uh, that I hadn't anticipated while I was practicing in my mind. 
so that's the kind of uh, the caution I'd give with too much visualization. But on the whole, I think if you if you can't practice for real, if you can't um, uh, get any better sort of preparation uh, in any other way than sitting and imagining what you're going to do, is is a very good technique that will seem to work on the whole. I kind of alluded to the another aspect of preparation which is sort of touch drills and that's rather than uh, imagining a whole um, training event uh, from start to finish touch drills would be more taking individual skill sets like an emergency drill and just um, practicing that individual drill so that that is learned by rote so that when I then had to execute that drill it would just be automatic so touch drills as I would call them would be going around the aircraft making sure I knew which switches had to be selected in which order uh, in, in order to carry an emergency drill, for example. So that was another thing that um, I would do to make sure I was all over the emergencies and ready for the contingencies that could be thrown at me, either for real or as part of training. Because um, we would regularly do emergency simulators where they would throw problems at you and you had to deal with all the emergencies safely and in the correct uh, fashion. So those were two aspects that I would um, definitely... Uh, do to make sure I felt prepared in addition to obviously just studying the material uh, that I was given for the mission so another sorry go on sorry to interrupt you Matt I just have a, like a thought or a question for you really on that which was that um, I've got this thing in my head here that maybe this idea of balancing being really well prepared with being really open-minded and that's that kind of idea might, might have some crossover for, for us in sport what you sparked for me there was um, I want to ask you this question there was some research done looking at um, uh, anxiety in, in parachutists, and they asked they they asked people at various different times in the preparation for a parachute jump how anxious they felt, uh, and the results were quite interesting. So with the um, so the novice, so I've never jumped out of a plane in my life. Uh, I'm funnily enough, I'm most anxious just before I jump out the airplane. That is the point when I'm most scared and I'm most anxious about what's about to happen. But interestingly. As people got more and more experience and became more expert, they found that, so your instructor with 10,000 jumps under their belt was most anxious at the point when they were packing their parachute and they were planning all the eventualities of what could happen and what could go wrong. And they were least anxious before they jumped out because by that point, everything was taken care of. And, and I'm just wondering, uh, is that mirrored in your journey? As, as you went along, did you find that as you got more experience that you do your worrying earlier? Yeah, so that's really interesting, actually, that you uh, that you've alluded to that. So, it's definitely uh, nerves and anxiety was is a big thing, and that was actually what I was going to come on to next, uh, which is quite handy. So, um, yeah, I would definitely feel anxious um, if on the morning of a flight, for example, I would feel fairly anxious throughout the um, the the whole the whole planning period. Uh, and then into the flight. But the thing is, if you're too anxious, then it can really degrade your performance because you're just your mind is mind is clogged up with uh, unnecessary thoughts and fears, and and you're just not thinking clearly, and you're not going to perform to your best ability. So, yeah, as the tra- as my training went on, the point I'd say that I felt anxious did become earlier. So I suppose the peak point of anxiety uh, would be. I would have been walking out to the aircraft um, in most cases, whereas now I'd say the time that I find myself most stressed out and anxious is during the planning phase because uh, I always find there's a lot of time pressure during the planning phase and you're also 
uh, again, discussing contingencies and you're making sure you haven't uh, missed anything. What I do find now, however, is that um, as soon as I get my, my flying kit on, as soon as I get strapped into the jet, I'm just in the zone and I just execute and then I carry on with the job and uh, I just get into the flow of it. That's something I'm going to talk about was uh, the principle of getting into the flow of things. Um, so I think, yeah, the point of anxiety definitely has shifted more towards the sort of being in the planning bubble rather than uh, flying the jet. Because um, I certainly did have uh, quite a lot of anxiety and that could be triggered by various things. If it was a um, a test flight, a particularly important test flight I was about to do, if um, if the weather was particularly bad or if it was an instructor that I was knew was a harsh person to fly with or a combination of those things, all those sort of things could make me feel quite negative and I'd start having quite a negative inner dialogue. And I had to really pay attention to that and nip that in the bud to make sure that it didn't spiral because very quickly you could just start like negative self-talking and uh, get into a really poor mindset which would then be, put you in no position to to perform well uh, so certainly that is something that um, I became aware of and, and now I try and uh, if I do feel myself getting negative I'll, I'll make a conscious decision to stop doing that and um, just focus on, on what I need to do and, and on the planning or on the preparation for the flight so uh, that is that is a interesting point with, with the sort of anxiety side of things and the inner narrative it's a, I'd say another thing which I, I learned to do um, was to pay attention to body language as well because I think there's quite I think studies have shown that there's a strong linkage between your your body language and your internal state and your mind so while I was getting quite anxious I'd you know start to close up into myself a little bit and now if I feel myself doing that I'll, I'll stop the negative uh, thinking if I can and also just try and relax my body language and uh, stand tall uh, and just you know r- rely on the fact that I should by now know what I'm doing because uh, I'm always I've been quite prone to being a bit underconfident and doubting myself which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it means you generally will um, not take any chances but uh, it can also be quite negative in that certainly it reduces your performance at times if you let it get to you. So controlling that inner dialogue and also having that body language. And as I said about just getting strapped into that jet, that's that for me, I think, was like an anchor point. I think anchoring is another technique which um, certainly uh, performance coaching I've heard uh, used, have, performance coaches I've heard use this term anchoring. Uh, and I think that's certainly some people either signing out the aircraft before they start walking to the jet. Uh, for me, getting my, my helmet on and strapping into the aircraft, that's the point that I seem to just uh, just focus, get into the zone and focus. Um, so that's another thing which which I think may have some crossover actually to, to uh, sports. So getting yourself, with get your spray deck on and the kayak potentially, maybe that's a point where you just, that's you in the zone. You stop, you stop worrying about all the contingencies, what could, could not happen. Yeah, God, what an interesting thought, Matt. Yeah, this this point line in the sand that you say, right, this is it, and now we we've done our prep, we're as prepared as we're ever going to be. I think there's crossovers for that in lots of different disciplines, whether you're mountain guides or whether you're surgeons or whatever. I think yeah, that's you know that early worrying, and then that this is the point we're doing this. I, I'm really conscious of, of time because we've we've got gone on this amazing conversation. I'd like to take you back to something though, if that's okay. I'm wondering if there were any critical moments in your training journey 
um, that you reflect back on as, you know, that you maybe use some of those things you've talked about to help you get over the line on it. I wonder if you're able to, to tell us about maybe one of those and uh, kind of uh, what it was like to, to get through that and overcome that. Yeah, so probably the um, probably the, the most recent example uh, would be my first uh, operational mission. Uh, so this is something I've clearly trained for to do for a long time, and um, this is this was me flying a, a jet with live weapons, uh, fully armed up, uh, out over a dangerous part of the world, um, not knowing what was going to happen when I got onto the area I was meant to be operating in. So that that was uh, the night before that first mission. I was like I slept much at all because it was it was a mix of nerves and anxiety, and also a bit of excitement because it's the first time I was doing the job for real. I think the, um, so I I found that I was, yeah, quite anxious. I had to act proactively, uh, apply all these different techniques. So the internal uh, dialogue was really important to make sure I, I wasn't getting negative. I was was trying to stay positive and, uh, know that I'd trained and I was well prepared and I I was ready for it. Uh, and I knew what I was doing. So, making sure that I was maintaining positivity and reminding myself that I was ready. Uh, the body language as well, yeah, making sure that I had the the right body language um, and also breathing control so it's easy to, to get quite um, anxious and to rapid breathing and it's been shown that you, you start losing capacity as you, you start, um, if you don't control your breathing, your heart rate, so all those things I was proactively doing to um, keep myself calm. And uh, I'd say but by the time I'd strapped into the jet, I was still quite anxious about it. Um, and it, and one of the first things that we have to do is air-to-air refueling on the way to where we are uh, operating. And um, that required uh, really precise flying. You're basically trying to get a refueling probe into a, maybe a five to six foot diameter basket, which is trailed behind a, a large airline type aircraft. And you have to formate with that aircraft and then uh, slowly close in and, and put your fueling probe into that basket really accurately in order to get the fuel uh, transferred to your jet. So that that was one of the first tasks that I had to do um, when I got into the uh, area of operations and uh, I, I struggled with it and it's not something I usually struggle with, um, thankfully. Uh, but I was I was finding it hard and I realised it was just, um, just put too much pressure on myself. I was obviously still stressed uh, and I'd say after I managed to get plugged in, got my fuel, after that point, I was fine. That just seemed to to be it for me. At that point, I was just in the zone and um, had, a, had a really uh, good, uneventful, thankfully, first mission. But um, that was probably the most recent time where I had to really make an effort and apply all the, the sort of things I used during flying training when I was um, uh, feeling the pressure and anxiety building on me. Well, thanks, Matt. Um, I've just had a thought there. Which, you know, it's, it seems to me that you know you're flying in this state-of-the-art jet with all the technology in the world, but ultimately we're still talking about humans, and humans are complex and they are emotional and they can be irrational and all the rest of it. And so, even with all that, you've still got a human in there who needs to be able to execute, needs to be able to deliver to the very best of their ability. Matt, I, I mean, we could undoubtedly continue this conversation for another hour. Um, I'm, I'm wondering. You know, just to close off this conversation a little bit, um, what advice would you have from what you've learned about going through that pressure bubble, as you called it, 
going through that environment, the kind of some of the teaching and coaching methods and things that you went through in, in that process in aviation. I'm wondering what um, bits of advice or nuggets of wisdom you might have for some of our some of our coaches out there, whether they're working in our recreational disciplines or competitive disciplines of things that, that you think might help them um, maybe to get the best out of the people that they're that they're training and preparing to, to do quite difficult things with. Yeah, so I think um, I think clearly, I mean, I'm, I'm not a coach myself. Um, have gone through coaching uh, with what are known as aircrew performance coaches, where they do touch on a lot of the sort of things I've discussed. And there's a crossover sports uh, coaching there quite heavily. That's what it was all based on. Um, I think, yeah, getting the best out of, out of people is to try and you have to just have to understand uh, what their, I guess, what their potentially what their mental weaknesses are Um, because I think so much of it is a mental game Uh, certainly flying uh, is a physical and a mental thing Uh, as I guess kayaking clearly there's the two aspects as well more physical than than mental whereas flying is more mental than physical but um, knowing how to uh, what those what issues people may have and then being able to to direct them to find a solution because um, a lot of what I was given uh, to try and help me, some of it just did not did not work for me, uh, and I had to really um, once I'd been given the guidance, I had to go away myself in some respects and and look into it in more detail to find out what worked for me. What what really I really found helpful actually was a book called um, The Pressure Principle by Dr. David Aldred. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that, but that book um, really made a big difference to me. Uh, certainly as far as uh, executing on the job for an individual flight was concerned. As far as dealing with like long-term pressure as well, though, that's not so much something that I felt was touched on by any of the performance coaching received. Um, And I think certainly if you're in a high-level competitive sport uh, training program, I think understanding the long-term effect of that pressure is important. And certainly I I read a few books um, by Ryan Holiday, such as the obstacle is the way, ego is the enemy, and um, stillness is the key. And those three books uh, really helped me deal with the um, the long-term pressure. Uh, it's kind of based on the principles of Stoic philosophy. Uh, and a lot of the American sports teams are now using Stoic philosophy as part of their coaching training. And I, I'd highly recommend that because that really just helps you take a step back and put things in perspective and and uh, and deal with the long term uh, pressure that you may be under. So uh, that's something I would uh, recommend having a look into as well. Matt, uh, you've you've really beautifully summarised that at the end. You're obviously used to working environment. We need to keep things yeah, nice and brief and to the point. So um, thanks very much. I mean, there are literally tons of things that I've written down that we could. Uh, we could talk about some more. A uh, couple of things people maybe to just to take away uh, in their goodie bag from from this podcast. This idea of balancing being really well prepared with being open minded and being flexible. It's something definitely something that's running through my my head. Um, you've really emphasised how important mental state is on our delivery and really getting into that um, and understanding that on a very individual level. Um, I think that's something we could definitely take away. And there's that lovely last point you made around the long term effect. Of, of being in a competitive or, or um, pressurized environment um, and learning how to manage that. Um, so whether that's you know people who are going through some of our, our training programs to become providers or, or guides later on, 
that's a long journey, all right? Or we've got athletes in training or coaches in long-term training as well. So I think anyone who's in that, there's a lot you can learn. Matt has mentioned some absolutely fantastic books, some of which I've read, some of which I'm going to go and read now. Um, so I, I really recommend you have a, have a listen to those. Um, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Uh, so we're, we're just um, so grateful for, um, for your time. Um, everyone, I hope you can put some of those things into action. Um, do keep an eye out for future podcasts and hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And obviously at the moment, uh, most important thing is please to stay safe. So um, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you.